The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. We study today the ninth verse of the eighth chapter of Romans. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwells in you. And we now have set before us a double description of the character and the position of the child of God. Negatively, it is stated, we are not in the flesh even though we are forced to confess that the flesh is in us. Positively, we are in the Spirit. The proof of our position in Christ is then set forth. The Holy Spirit is dwelling in us. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's Word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's Word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we'll be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled Perfection of Position. In the course of his ministry, Dr. Barnhouse met a number of true believers who were dispirited, discouraged, and downcast. They had failed to understand their perfect position in Christ and had allowed their minds to become inwardly focused and excessively introspective. The joy of their salvation was restored by a rediscovery of this powerful biblical truth. Do you comprehend the glorious fact of your perfect eternal position in Jesus Christ? The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, Perfection of Position. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee for all of thy grace and faithfulness, and we pray thee that thou in this hour shalt speak to our hearts. We pray thee for each listening one, that whatever the need, that thou shalt meet that need, to the praise and the glory of thy grace. Give us the courage to have faith in thy truth, to accept thy diagnosis of sin, and we pray thee that all who listen this day may be willing to admit the truth of thy statements in order that they may receive the remedy which thou hast provided in Jesus Christ, through whom we ask this for thy glory, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now the first statement is a divine statement. We are not in the flesh. It would never be possible for a man to know this, except God had revealed it to us in his word. Of our own knowledge, we could know nothing other than the fact that sin is in us. And if we looked only at our daily lives and thoughts, we would be forced to think that we were in the flesh. 
But the whole reason for the description of the great struggle in the closing verses of the seventh chapter is that the surrendered believer finds that even after he has been crucified with Christ, there is the living evidence of the fact that the flesh remains in us. But here we have the blessed declaration that we are not in the flesh. It is God who says this. The child of God can look with confidence at the word of this declaration. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said? And if we seek to answer the question of that hymn, we'll find that we're left groping because there is no answer. What more can he say than to you he hath said? There is nothing that God could have said to us that he has not said. There is no promise that could have been in the Bible that is not to be found there. There is no type of strengthening that the Lord has not provided for those who are in Christ. Doubt looks at circumstances, but faith looks at the word of God. We are not in the flesh. It is God who says so. Let's take an illustration from the life of St. Peter. Peter walks along the dark road, following afar off. He enters the precincts of the governor's palace and soon denies Christ. And then again and again, with oaths and cursings. Peter, are you in the flesh? No, Peter is not in the flesh. He's in the spirit. But it doesn't seem as though Peter is in the spirit. Nevertheless, he is in the spirit. His acts seem to be fleshly. Yes, but it's because the flesh is in him and not because he is in the flesh. He is not in the flesh. The Lord himself has refused to wash Peter's head and hands. Already, he says, ye are clean through the word that I have spoken unto you. Oh, Peter will need the daily cleansing that is symbolized by the washing of the feet. But there is nothing more within that can be changed. The perfection of Christ is upon him, and the Spirit is about to be breathed upon him. He'll go out and weep bitterly, but this will not change his relationship to the great central facts of his being in Christ and the life of the Spirit being his life. In the course of my ministry, I have found true believers who have been dispirited, downcast, and discouraged because they have not understood the certainty of their position in Christ. They have allowed their minds to turn inwards, and this introspection has caused them to wonder at their salvation, to wonder whether or not they have been saved. Their eyes removed from the Savior, they have been filled with doubting, and the doubting has brought the whole train of despair with it. It will be well if each one who hears these words will examine himself definitely to see if he has put his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and is looking to no other cause for justification beyond that which is in the mind of God in sovereign grace. Whenever I've had to deal with such discouraged ones, I have found that the one way to restore to them the joy of their salvation is to turn their minds away from their own hearts and its spring of Adamic deeds and to fix the minds on the exalted Christ, risen, enthroned at the right hand of God, interceding for us. It is when our gaze is upon him that we can accept with calm satisfaction the truth of our text. We are not in the flesh, even though the flesh is still in us. It is a divine matter and God has settled it in his own way. Positively, the truth is even more wonderful. We are in the Spirit. This again is the simple declaration of God. 
It is something that I could never know by myself. I might know certain spiritual blessings, but the presence of sin within me is such that I could never know that God considers me to be in the Holy Spirit. But you see, it is God who knows what he had in mind when he set out to accomplish our redemption. And he knows that he has accomplished that which he purposed to do. He tells us that we are not in the flesh. He also tells us that we are in the spirit. This is supplemental to the truth which we saw in the fifth chapter, where we were told that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given unto us. There we saw that the spirit is in us. But here we see that we are in the spirit. It is the ascription to the third person of the Godhead of the same truth that was set forth in connection with the Lord Jesus when we were placed in him. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation, Paul tells the Corinthians. And just as truly, if any man be in the spirit, he is a new creation. For to be in Christ is to be in the spirit, and to be in the spirit is to be in Christ. We are joined to Christ as our federal head. We are placed in the spirit as a revelation of our eternal position in the Godhead. In the sight of the eternal God, we are complete, and our position is in the Holy Spirit in such a fashion that it can never be altered. We have been incorporated into the body of Christ. We have been taken into the deity. It is the position of each child of God who has been made alive in the new birth. We are in Christ. We are in the Spirit. Now it should be noticed that the little preposition in is used to indicate two completely different things. For while it is first stated that we are in the Spirit, it is now stated that the Spirit is in us. It is the coming of the life of God through the Holy Spirit that works in us to place us in the Spirit and in the Lord. The Holy Spirit then is seen to be the source of all our position and place in God. Now it should be noted at once that these glorious truths are not spoken of a part of the great company of believers. This is not a description of the apostles or the chief saints, but of all who are in Christ. It applies equally to those who are babes in Christ to those who have some growth in Christ, and to those who have grown the most in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The more advanced believers bow in humility before these great truths. They know that all that they have and are derives from the work of the Spirit of God within them. But equally, the humblest babe in Christ need not draw back because of any awareness of his babyhood. The very instant a man passes out of death and into life, he is no longer legally in the flesh, but in, in the spirit. The spirit is in him from that same moment, and all of the truths of grace are his. None of these things is said to be gained by prayer, or by Bible study, or by church attendance, or by diligence in the pursuit of any of the so-called means of grace. All of this perfection of position is the part of each believer, inequality because of the grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Holy Spirit. Rainsford says of this, the old nature has ceased to have any existence in the sight of God. It has been crucified, dead, and buried with the Savior. Legally, it was destroyed at the cross of Christ and legally abolished when he rose from the dead. The Son hath made us free. Now, wherefore, my brethren, ye are also become dead to the law, Paul tells them in the last chapter. Ye are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead. So, delivered from the flesh by the death of Christ, 
that he might be married to him in his resurrection, life, and glory. The life that the believer henceforth lives is the life of Christ. Now the same thing is true in the positive description of all believers. Just as it is said of every, every child of God that none are in the flesh, so it is now stated that every, every child of God is in the spirit. There could be no exception. Oh, what courage this should give to the trembling souls who are just learning to look away from self and to fix their attention on Christ. What calm this should give to those who are inclined to be agitated because they are only learning to rest completely in Christ and to look away completely from the confidence in the flesh. We must see, however, that the source of all this position and of our consequent assurance in it is none other than God himself, God the Holy Spirit. How sad the man who would attempt to find any source of confidence in himself. It would be necessary for God to bring all of the plans and activities of life to dismal failure so that such a one could learn the truth of the nothingness of man and the all-sufficiency of the Lord. Everything is contingent upon the work of the Lord in us. None of this can be true of any man in whom the Holy Spirit is not dwelling, but none of this can fail to be true of the man in whom the Holy Spirit has come to dwell. Once more, we can take occasion to point out that it is not necessary for you to have a spiritual experience similar to that of any other individual. God does not work in single patterns. You have heard some people who testify with great joy to a single experience when they came out of death and into life. And we will not say anything that would diminish aught of their thankfulness and praise to God for such an experience. But do not listen for a moment to those who would insist that you must have an experience exactly like theirs. Some have been confused because they have been told that they are not saved if they cannot tell the date of their salvation. Thank God that is not true. The date of our salvation is known to God alone. He knows when he quickened us. And he knows the process by which that new life finally grew to the point where it made itself known to us. I am more and more sure that everyone who is saved was saved long before they knew anything about it, and that what they call their salvation time is merely their awareness of the existence of life in them. The important thing to know about your salvation is not the date that it happened, but the certainty that it has happened. Do you know that you are alive in Christ? Are you certainly and surely aware of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit testifying to you of the presence of the divine life within you? That's the important thing. Now, this verse is one of the strong proofs of the personality of the Holy Spirit who comes to do all this work of assurance in us. He is not a force or a power that we can take hold of and use as we would use some modern electrical implement. He is the divine third person who is to dwell within us and to take hold of our lives and use them as he desires for his divine purpose. This is a truth that should be the object of our deepest thought, for it is the truth that can make life over from moment to moment and keep the life fresh and green like the ground that lies around an ever-flowing spring. The knowledge of this truth should lift the heart in song and cause the life to be filled with joy. Once far from God and dead in sin, no light my heart could see. But in God's word, the light I found 
now Christ liveth in me. Christ liveth in me. Christ liveth in me. Oh, what a salvation this, that Christ liveth in me. And another verse of that hymn goes on, As lives the flower within the seed, as in the cone the tree, so praise the God of truth and grace, his spirit dwelleth in me. Now, it must be realized that this indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer is in the life of every believer. It is not a second work of grace. There is no life in any man if the Holy Spirit has not brought that life in regeneration. The coming of the Spirit to dwell within us must then be simultaneous and instantaneous with the coming with his work of regeneration. There have been some who have become confused because of the words spoken by the apostle to the believers in the church at Ephesus at the time of his arrival in their midst. We read it in the 19th of Acts. Paul met some disciples and said to them, Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? Alas, how many poor Christians have had their peace disturbed and their whole growth in the Christian life retarded because of some misuse of this passage. There are some people who use this text today as though it could be spoken to people living in the 20th century. But when the passage is rightly understood, we shall see that there is no idea whatsoever of a second work of grace to be found here, but only the application of truths to individuals who were passing out of the Old Testament conditions and into New Testament conditions of spiritual life. There were devout Jews who read and obeyed the law of God as found in the books of Moses. They accepted without question the one sanctuary law of the book of Leviticus. They knew that God said that none could bring a sacrificial lamb except to the door of the congregation where the priest of the family of Levi could offer it for the sinner. There were such Jews in the time of John the Baptist who made the long pilgrimage down to Jerusalem in order to fulfill this law. They heard John the Baptist preach and received baptism from his hands. They then returned to their home in the dispersion, residing at Ephesus in this case. Years passed by. They had little or no contact with the land of Israel and did not know that Jesus had come and lived and died. And yet they remained faithful to the truths that they had learned from John the Baptist. Finally, Paul comes into their part of the country, hears of them, seeks them out, and asks them if they had received the Holy Spirit when they believed. They answered truthfully that they had not even heard that there was a Holy Spirit. Paul then asked them with what baptism they had been baptized, and was told that they had been baptized with John's baptism. Paul immediately baptized them over again in the name of the Lord Jesus, undoubtedly using the formula taught by the Savior himself in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now they were New Testament Christians, transplanted out of their old position in the covenants of God through Abraham and Moses, and made members of the body of Christ in the new covenant. A historical analogy may help to simplify this passage. In the early days of colonial United States, there were many families who left Virginia to cross the mountains into the more open country of the Western Plains. There were some of these families on the move who became isolated in the mountains in the course of their passage to the West and who remained there. Let us use such a family as an example. They've left Virginia and crossed the Cumberland Gap into the mountains toward the West. They've had an accident with one of their wagons. 
and have camped for a winter and then a year and then for ten years in one of the mountain coves. Finally, they hear the noise of another caravan coming by the road that they had traveled, and after assuring themselves of the friendliness of the newcomers, they enter into eager conversation with them, learning many things which they had ignored during their decade of separation from the rest of the world. The older settlers ask about the political authorities. Who is our king now? Is George III still ruling? And then, to their astonishment, they learn that there has been a war of revolution, a war of independence, during the years of their separation. They are no longer under a king. They are members of a republic, and they have a president, George Washington, who has been duly elected to preside over their destinies. And all along they had been saying each day, God save the king. Each morning, in total ignorance of the historical upheaval which had taken place during their isolation. Now, the position of the Ephesian believers was somewhat analogous to these isolated Americans. They had been in Jerusalem in the days of John the Baptist, but in the interval since their return, no word of the great events had come through to them. They did not know that Jesus Christ had been manifested. They did not know that he had lived and ministered, had been put to death and then raised from the dead by the power of God. They did not know that he had ascended into heaven and given forth the Holy Spirit. Now they hear it for the first time. They immediately surrender to the new truth that God has for them and become identified with the Lord Jesus Christ, receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit and knowing in an instant the coming of the Holy Spirit to dwell within them and to count them as being in Christ and in the Spirit. But to speak to someone in this 20th century and to ask if they have received the Holy Spirit since they believed is as impossible as it would be to ask someone who was born and lived in these United States throughout a long lifetime if they had become American citizens since they were born here. The birth in the land at the present time constitutes automatic citizenship, and the new birth of the Holy Spirit constitutes immediate and simultaneous entrance into the body of Christ, and baptism with the Holy Spirit, by which that entrance into the body is achieved. Finally, it should be noted that our position in the Spirit and not in the flesh is dependent upon the presence of the Holy Spirit within our lives. This question should be carefully, carefully considered by every professing Christian, by you. Am I a possessing Christian? Do I possess the Holy Spirit of God? Has he come to take up his abode in me in the new birth? Is my body his temple? Is he dwelling within? Oh, not merely the power of God or some attribute of God, but the Holy Spirit of himself, quickening, maintaining, guiding, controlling. This was the promise of the Lord, and this is the possession of his people. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and he shall be in you. This was the promise and prophecy of the Lord himself, and this is the great fact that the epistles confirm as being the mark and proof of life in those who have passed out of death and into life. This is the declaration of our text today. O believers, hear it and believe it. Ye are not in the flesh, even though sometimes you may know the flesh to be in you. 
you are in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. And if you have trusted in Christ, that is, of course, certain fact. And as we shall see in our next study, this fact forms the touchstone of our salvation. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And this terrible difference we shall look upon the Lord willing in our next study. And our Father and our God, we pray thee that the Holy Spirit shall take the word to every heart. If there be any who have not been born again, give them restlessness, that they may know no peace until they rest in Christ. We ask thee, O our Lord and our God, that thou shalt use the word in this hour to bring men to face these great realities and especially to bring Christians to put their trust in thee and to know that the position that thou hast outlined for them is indeed true. Hear our prayer, we pray thee. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it. Amen. Believers are not in the flesh, although the flesh is very much in us. But the Holy Spirit lives in every child of God, and His presence is the guarantee of our eternal inheritance. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled, Perfection of Position. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse anytime, anywhere, around the globe, via the Internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at alliancenet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, Perfection of Position, or simply request message number R8-13. We would also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled, How God Saves Men. A Latin poet once said that there were as many opinions as there were men. You can find a wide variety of ideas about salvation even among Christians. This free booklet clears up the confusion by setting forth God's Word about how He saves people. You will understand God's grace, love, and power in salvation as you read about faith, God's part in salvation, how God does not save men, and God's workmanship. Ask for your free copy of How God Saves Men When You Call or Write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from this broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians, including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.